Job chapter 18. As we reflect upon Resurrection Sunday and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is something that we as believers have always been able to reflect upon in the past tense. That Christ arose. That He has victory over death, over sin, over the grave. That He has purchased for us salvation through His death on the cross. That He has won the victory in His resurrection. But there were many, even prior to the life of Jesus Christ, to His ministry, His incarnation, His suffering, His death, and that wonderful, glorious day of resurrection, who yet looked forward to the day when their Redeemer would claim victory. We think of those that looked forward to the day and we think of the Old Testament prophets. We think of David. We think of perhaps even Abraham. But in Job, which is commonly understood to be the oldest written book in the Bible, we see a man, probably a contemporary of Abraham, who had a great knowledge of what was going to come in the latter days. In Job 18 and 19, we step into Bildad's second argument. His argument is much an extension of the first. He accuses Job. And Bildad focuses upon the destruction of the wicked, that the light of the wicked would be put out, that the wicked would fall by his own works, that the wicked would have no peace, that the wicked would fall into obscurity. And in Job 18, he attempts to convince Job yet and still that Job is one of those whose light would be put out, who would fall into obscurity, who would have no peace because he was wicked. He calls upon Job to repent. To be restored by God through repenting of whatever sin was in his life. As we transition into Job 19, Job responds to Bildad. As is typical, in verses 1-6, through six, he accuses his comforters of failing in their duties, overstepping their bounds by their rebukes and refusing, failing to comfort him as they had said they had come to do. In verse 7, he states the futility of his cause, that he cries out for wrong, but he's not heard. In verses 8-20, through 20, he gives greater insight into his sufferings. In verses 8 and 9, he says, He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass. He hath set darkness in my paths. He hath stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. Proverbs 17.6 calls the grandchildren of old men their crown. Most likely what Job was lamenting in verse 9 is that his children had been killed. That the crown had been taken from his head. That his children were no longer with him. In verses 10 through 12, he states that he's lost hope. 
Verses 13 through 17, he describes how his family has forsaken him as if he was a man of great disease. In verses 18 and 19, he speaks that children would not even come near him. They were afraid of him. They wouldn't step anywhere near him. They, they, they wouldn't even look at him. He asks for pity in verses 21 and 22. And in verses 23 and 24, he again calls for vindication. Wishing, he says, that someone would write his words with an iron pen. The idea of permanence so that future generations at least would vindicate him and his righteousness. And as we step into verses 25 to 27 of Job chapter 19, he says something very exciting. Job has lamented. He has recognized his circumstances. He has uh, given us even more insight into how difficult this time has been for him. But notice what he says in verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Thousands of years before Jesus Christ would become flesh, thousands of years before He would minister upon this earth, thousands of years before Jesus Christ would climb Mount Calvary, would be hung upon a cross and would die. Thousands of years before He cried, it is finished. Thousands of years before the stone was rolled away from the tomb. Thousands of years before the angels cried, He is not here for He is risen. Thousands of years before Paul penned the words, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. A man named Job, in the very depths of his misery, in the very depths of physical human suffering, found a glimmer of hope. And that glimmer of hope was found in his Redeemer that lived and that would stand in the latter days. And even more so, that Job in his flesh would one day stand before that Redeemer. Wow. So this morning, as we contemplate our Redeemer who lives, I'd like us to see three reminders of that redemption from these three verses in Job chapter 19. The first reminder this morning from verse 25, Your Redeemer liveth. Your Redeemer liveth. You know, one of the elements of the Christian relationship that sets it apart from other religions is that we have a living Redeemer. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 and 31 tells us that in Christ God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Our glory in God is that we have a living Redeemer. The implications of a living living Redeemer are both vast and tremendous. 
May I give you five implications of your living Redeemer this morning? Number one, a living Redeemer gives you confidence. Jesus Christ gives you confidence as you live this life now, and it gives you confidence in the life to come. Romans 6 verses 8 through 10 says this, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over Him. For in that He died, He died unto sin once, but in that He liveth, He liveth unto God. In that Christ died, but that He rose again from the grave, death has no dominion over Christ, Christ lives, we have confidence that we serve a living Redeemer, that we serve a God that lives, and that we will live too. A living Redeemer gives you confidence. Second implication, a living Redeemer gives you security. Jesus' life, His resurrection from the dead, that He conquered death and the grave, gives you the security that you are forever in His hands, regardless of life circumstances. Listen as I read Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. Who is He that condemneth? Is it Christ that died? Yea, rather, that is risen again? Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Skip to verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who can separate us from the love of God? See, Jesus Christ is a risen Redeemer, not even death can separate us from the risen Lord, from the love of Christ. A living Redeemer gives us confidence, implication number one. Implication number two, a living Redeemer gives us security. Number three and four, let me put them together. A living Redeemer gives us courage and by extension, accountability. We know that our Redeemer is Lord of heaven and earth. Regardless of man's attempts to exalt himself above God, we know that God is Lord. We know that Jesus is Lord. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that he will have victory, that the kingdom is in his hand. Jesus Christ prayed in his prayer, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That Jesus Christ will be King will rule and reign on earth one day gives us courage to know that we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But it also brings to us accountability. This knowledge making us ever aware of the responsibility upon us to serve that King, to obey that King. Final implication this morning We've seen that the living Redeemer gives us confidence, that the living Redeemer gives us security, the living Redeemer gives us courage, the living Redeemer gives us accountability. Finally, the living Redeemer gives us obligation. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 and 15 says this, 
For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That we should not henceforth live for ourselves, but live for the one that died for us and rose again. Brings obligation. I bring you back to Romans chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The world turns. Nations rise and fall. Leaders come and go. Ideologies and philosophies, they appear, then they fall away. Cultures change. People change. Technologies change. Societies change. All around us has changed, but in the midst of it all, there have only ever been Three days in the extent of history where a man could not say with confidence, I know my Redeemer liveth. There have only been three days in all of history where a man could say that, and I can guarantee you today is not that day. And tomorrow is not that day. And the next day is not that day. And for the rest of eternity, there will never be a day where you or I cannot confidently say, I know my Redeemer liveth, because we serve a living Redeemer. He has died. He was buried. But He rose again the third day in victory over the grave. Job says, I know my Redeemer liveth. And so for we who are redeemed by the blood, we have confidence. We have security. We have courage. We have accountability. We have obligation. All because we serve a living Redeemer. Your Redeemer liveth Second, this morning, in verse 25 again, let's see. Secondly, your Redeemer is coming. Your Redeemer is coming. Job said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Job's second phrase in verse 25 is as powerful as the first. Not only does Job's Redeemer live, but Job's Redeemer will stand upon the earth one day. The term latter days, as it's mentioned here, is a typical Old Testament prophetic term. And it's used without fail to describe either the church age or the millennial kingdom. Now, in the Old Testament, there was no understanding of the church age. It's what the New Testament calls a mystery. And so as we consider the prophecies of the latter days we can recognize that it is speaking of that last time. Those last days when Jesus Christ establishes His kingdom upon this earth. The first use of this phrase is found in Numbers 24.14. In this phrase, Balaam describes to Balak the latter days. You recall Balaam, that prophet, and Balak, the um, king who desired Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam said that in the latter days, a star would come out of Jacob and a scepter would rise out of Israel and smite the corners of Moab, an event that is not complete until Jesus Christ takes the throne physically in the millennial kingdom, until those last events 
of those last days. The other times, the latter days is mentioned in Scripture. It's in Deuteronomy, it's in Jeremiah, it's in Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. All of them prophetic references to the millennium and to the millennial kingdom. The implication then, as we look at Job and his his speech here in, in verse 25, is that he's aware of end times prophecy. He is aware of what is going to happen in the latter days. God has, in some way, shape, or form, already revealed to Job and to the men of that time what he was going to do, his prophetic plan. Lest we should say that God gave no light to those before the Scriptures, we see here quite clearly that God gave great light. Job even knew that his Redeemer would live and stand upon the earth in the latter days. And we know this as well. The reality of the Redeemer returning should touch not just our theology, it should not just touch our Resurrection Sunday, but the very way that we should live our lives. First, it should comfort us. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Paul says that our crown of rejoicing, the joy that we have, our hope and our expectation is that when Christ comes, you're coming with Him because you are a born-again believer. But it should also comfort us in the negative sense. We are comforted by knowing that those who have gone before, that our loved ones who have died in Christ, that we will see them one day, that when Jesus Christ returns, they'll be returning with Him, and that if, if uh, the Lord should tarry and we should die, that we will be returning with the Lord as well. But it should also comfort us negatively. Let me tell you what I mean by that after I read Second Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Paul says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. Paul there is speaking of that wicked, the wicked one, the Antichrist that would come. And he says, even in his reference to knowing the wicked that will come, that he is, a, he is one whom will be consumed with the spirit of Christ's mouth. That he would be destroyed with the brightness of Christ's coming. That not only are we comforted knowing that Jesus Christ will come and that our loved ones who are dead in Christ will come with Him, but we are also comforted in knowing that when Jesus Christ returns, all of the wickedness of this world will be destroyed. That finally, all of the wickedness that stands and that boasts itself against God and all of that wickedness that right now claims such a dominance upon this world will be forever removed at Christ's coming. And so the Lord Jesus Christ ends His personal revelation through the Scriptures in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 22, verses 12-14, through 14, He says this, And behold, I come quickly, and My reward is with Me, to give every man according to his work shall be, excuse me, as his work shall be, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they might have, the right, have right to the tree of life 
and may enter in through the gates into the city. As Jesus Christ ended his revelation, he said, Remember, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. I come quickly and when I come, I will bring the righteous, I will destroy the wicked. So it should comfort us to know that our Redeemer will stand upon this earth. It should also compel us. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaks concerning His second coming, a time in history that you and I will not see in these bodies. Should the Lord tarry, we pass away, we will be with the Lord at His second coming, or we will be raptured with Him and be with Him in that regard. Either way, these bodies will, will be done. Yet Jesus gives a declaration in Matthew 24, though it's not speaking of our age, that is applicable to you and I and anyone else in history. He says this in verses 45 through 47. Who then is a faithful and wise servant who his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. Jesus Christ says, Blessed is the man that when his Lord returns, he is found working. He's found doing the work of his Lord. Blessed is the man that when Jesus Christ raptures this church, is found working, is found doing. 1 John 2 Verses 28 and 29 say this, And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If ye know that He is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of Him. John says, Work. Work the works of righteousness that when Jesus Christ appears, you would not be ashamed at His coming. But you can be confident. It should give us confidence as we labor for Him. Job sat in a pile of ashes, boils all over his body from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, scraping himself with potsherds, arguing with these men around him that are contending for his wickedness while he earnestly contends for his innocence before God. And he says, I know my Redeemer liveth. And that he, my Redeemer, shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. My Redeemer is going to stand upon the earth. Your Redeemer liveth. Your Redeemer is coming. Third and finally this morning, your resurrection is assured. Your resurrection is assured. Certainly, I Speak to those who are believers this morning by and large. However, if you are an unbeliever in this room, know that you, you will also face a bodily resurrection. The doctrine of the bodily resurrection was not unknown to Job. We saw it in Job 11 through 14. We're going to see it here even more clearly. Job states that he will die. Notice what he says in verse 26. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, he says, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He says, I will die. 
And when I die, I will go to the earth. I will rot in the grave. Worms will consume my body. I will decompose and I will go into the earth like any other man. He says, but in my flesh, I shall see God. See, Job is not simply stating here that his spirit will be with God when he dies. He states that he will see his God, his Redeemer in flesh, in his flesh. Job believed in a bodily resurrection. He knew a resurrected body was coming. A perfected body was coming. And he was longing for the day as he sat in those ashes. As he scraped the boils off of him. He longed for the day when he would have his resurrected body and he would stand before his God in his body. You and I, thousands of years later, wait for the very same thing. Though our hope and assurance should be far greater in many ways than anything Job should have felt or could have felt because the Savior has died and has risen again and we have assurances through, our Holy, through the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives that it is true. We rest upon God's promises, but these promises have been proven through the resurrection of the Redeemer Himself from the dead. And so as we read in our scripture reading this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 13-28, let me read to you just a portion of that again together. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. See, Job looked forward and based upon his faith in what he had been taught by God, he said, I know that my Redeemer will one day stand upon the earth and I know that I will stand before Him in my flesh. But we, who in this age rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, rejoice in the empty tomb, ought to have all the greater confidence, the greater joy, and the greater expectation that we will one day stand before that living Redeemer. Jesus' resurrection is your promise that if you are a born-again believer, saved through personal acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you too will see God in your flesh. You will rejoice in your Redeemer, in the glory of God for all of eternity. And so as Revelation 21, verse 4 so aptly tells us, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That was Job's longing. That was Job's glimmer of hope. I know my Redeemer liveth, and in the latter days He shall stand upon the earth. And though this body will 
be eaten with worms and decay and go into the ground, he says, I will stand before my God, my Redeemer, in flesh. I'm going to have a new body, a perfected body, and I will stand before my God in that body. These two verses in Job 19 pack quite a punch. Job, in the midst of his grief, his trial, his trouble, he finds solace, he finds comfort, he finds hope in the promises of God. And it's our hope as well. Your Redeemer liveth. Therefore you have confidence, security, courage, accountability, obligation. Your Redeemer is coming. You should be comforted. You should be compelled by that. Your resurrection is assured. We live this life. We suffer pain. We suffer loss. We suffer illness. But we will see God in our flesh. Bodies free of pain. Without loss. Without death. Now, if that does not give us reason to rejoice this morning, nothing will. As we close, let me ask a couple of questions. My Redeemer liveth. Jesus Christ is alive. The tomb is empty. But is He your Redeemer? There are those in this room this morning who have never come to the point in your life where you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If this is you, if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, please listen carefully. Resurrection Sunday is a very special Sunday to Christians. It's a very special Sunday for the very reasons you've heard today. Many reasons given this morning, but these aren't the only reasons. We've sung about other reasons. See, because before Jesus could rise from the dead, as Brother Grismore mentioned this morning, before He could rise from the dead, He first had to die. That begs the question, why did Jesus die? Why did He have to die? He had to die because you are a sinner. Because I am a sinner. Because when we sinned, we were put on a path to hell. Because God is a holy God. Because God is a just God. God could not and cannot abide sin. No sin may stand in His presence. Therefore, we as sinners can never stand before God. And a just and a right and a holy punishment as decreed by the holy God of the universe is eternity in hell for our sin. There is nothing that we could do, there is nothing we can do to pay for our sin, for we are sinners by nature. We could try to pay for our sin, but we're just going to sin again. A sinner can never pay for his own sins through his works. And God, seeing the state of mankind, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, knowing that there's no way that you or I could ever pay the penalty for those sins, so loved the world, the Scriptures tell us, 
that He gave His only begotten Son. And God said, I am going to send My Son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty that mankind could never pay. To do for man what He cannot do for Himself. And so Jesus Christ, the day in which He died on the cross, took upon Himself the penalty of your sin and my sin. And as God looked upon Jesus Christ as He hung upon the cross, God counted the suffering and the death of Christ as sufficient payment to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And so when Jesus hung upon that cross and He said, it is finished, the price had been paid, the sin had been covered, and the way was paved for you and I to be saved from our sin so that we might join God, be in fellowship with God, and go to heaven one day. Eternal life is how the Scriptures describe it. So what must we do? The price has been paid. You say, well, pastor, if the price is paid, isn't that enough? Well, the Scriptures tell us that the price has been paid, and yet there's an expectation for those who would desire eternal life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Though Jesus Christ has paid the penalty, there will be men and women who will go through their life, who will never humble themselves before God and accept Christ as their Savior, and they will spend an eternity in hell for sins that have been paid. Jesus Christ holds the gift of eternal life out to you and He says all you need to do is accept the gift and it's yours. But if you don't accept the gift, it's not yours. I could take this Bible and I could hold it out to Evan and I could say, Evan, I am giving you this Bible. But if I spend the next 15 years of my life standing here with it outstretched, it's not his Bible until he takes his hand and he accepts it from me. In the very same way, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. The debt is paid. The gift is being offered. But what must we do? We must believe on Jesus Christ to accept that gift. Humble yourself before God. Accept Christ's payment for your sin. Accept the victory of His resurrection and confess your belief in His finished work unto salvation. If you have never done that this morning, today is the day to accept Christ as your Savior, to be ushered into the victory that Jesus Christ won when He arose from the grave. For we who are believers in this room this morning, a few questions as I close. You know you have a living Redeemer. You know He is coming. You know you will stand before Him one day. Are you living like it? Resurrection Sunday. It's a tremendous opportunity for us to 
turn our eyes and our hearts toward our own actions before God. We often say that Jesus Christ is coming again. We know that Jesus Christ is coming again, and yet we don't live our lives like He's coming again. We live our lives for ourselves. We live our lives with the temporal things of this earth consuming our focus. Let's turn our hearts and our eyes heavenward for a few moments. Are you living like Jesus Christ is coming again? Does your life reflect the urgency of Christ coming at any moment? Because we know that our Redeemer lives. We know that one day He will stand upon this earth and that in our flesh we will see God. You have a living Redeemer. And Jesus Christ testified in Revelation 22, Behold, I come quickly. We need to live like He's coming soon.